Welcome back to the conclusion of the Matter podcast. This is Ryan Weaver, one of your hosts, here with Robbie Santiago and Ren Ferguson um, as we are discussing biblical topics around the... Well, Robbie and I are around a round table and Ren is around his desk, but anyway, we're all huddled around having good conversation and whatnot. But anyway... Um, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So as if you listened last week, you heard we started a topic, and we're going to pick it up where we left off last week, but I'll kick it over to Ren and let him give you the details. Okay, thank you. Again, glad everybody is listening. Hope that these that this series uh, has been and will be uh, beneficial to you. Just to very quickly recap what we looked at last week, we started looking at TULIP, uh, which is the five-point acronym for uh, the basic Calvinistic teachings. Last week we looked at total depravity, which is the idea of inherited or original sin, uh, that we were born with sin because of what Adam did in the garden. Uh, we also looked at unconditional election, uh, which basically states that God chooses who, whatever individual he wants to to be saved, uh, and it's not really dependent upon the person uh, or any sort of condition that the person must meet. Uh, before God will save them, he's already predetermined that uh, he is going uh, to bring that particular person to salvation. Uh, so we're going to continue that by looking at L, which stands for limited atonement. Now, we've talked about this off podcast a couple of times, uh, but this one, and and there are a couple of these that have a grain of truth in them, but they are taken to such an extent and applied in such a way uh, that they become unbiblical and they become false doctrines. Uh, limited atonement, uh, I was mentioning before we started recording, if all that was meant by this is that not everybody is going to go to heaven, I would be on board with that idea 100% because that is undeniably biblical. Uh, Christ says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate. Uh, because broad is the gate that leads to destruction, but that way that leads to life is narrow. And he says, few there be that find it. Uh, in Matthew twenty, in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, he makes a very similar point. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so clearly, and I don't think anybody, well, I shouldn't say anybody. There are s- s- people who believe in uh, universal salvation, that eventually God's going to bring everybody to salvation. But again, I think that's unbiblical. Uh, because, and I would say the majority of, of people who at least cra- claim some form of Christianity would agree that not everybody is going to be in heaven. Uh, so again, on that level, I would agree with it, but that's not really what they mean when they say limited atonement. Uh, as I mentioned, I have some more definitions and little excerpts from R.C. Sproul's series of articles that he wrote on this. And of limited atonement, he said, I prefer not to use the term limited atonement because it is misleading. Uh, And he probably has in mind what I just said, that it would seem to mean just that principle that not everybody's going to go to heaven. I don't know if that's what he actually has in mind, but that's possibly what he's thinking about there. He says, I rather speak of definite redemption or definite atonement, uh, which communicates that God the Father designed the work of redemption 
specifically with a view to providing salvation for the elect and that Christ died for his sheep and laid down his life for those the Father had given to him. So in essence, what limited atonement teaches is that Christ only died for those that would be saved. And again, in a sense, I get where they're coming from because not everybody is going to take advantage of the sacrifice that Christ made and only those that are obedient to him are going to have their sins washed away. So it is only the elect that are going to uh, receive that salvation. But this connects back to the last one, that unconditional election that God picked, that he chose and picked specific individuals that would be saved. And it was only for those individuals that God had already predetermined that Christ died for. He did not die. He didn't die to open up the door of salvation to anyone or to everyone, I should say. He only died, as R.C. Sproul states there, he mentions it very subtly, that Christ died for his sheep, that it was only for those people that he died. Well, if we go back to Romans 5, again, where we spent a lot of time last week, verse 8, kind of in the previous context, that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if it was just for those those sheep, then why does it say here that while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, right. you know, that's kind of contradictory. And I forget exactly, I just thinking of this verse off the top of my head, I think it's in John, maybe chapter 12 somewhere, but somewhere in John, um, where Jesus says that if he was lifted up, that he would draw all men yeah. unto him. It's not like a limited limited group of people there. Like how, Most of the time when it's referred to in salvation, it's like for more or less everybody. It's not like limited here. Ryan, yeah. I'm sorry if I cut you off. No, for I something. hadn't even started yet. <laughs> First John chapter 2, verse 2. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. himself is the propitiation for our sins, which we've talked about in the past. It's a payment to appease God's wrath, um, and not for ours only, but also for the, the, whole, the whole world. So it can't just be, yeah. I mean, are they saying the whole world is only those people? I mean, how do they yeah. get around these verses, this well, verse specifically? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> they'd probably say we're taking it out of... Or I, I know for a fact that they would say that we're taking that out of context. But, I mean, in the immediate context, he's talking about our salvation. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't, Christ yeah. providing it. Yeah. yeah. Is there a particular place where, like, any time that salvation's mentioned, that, um, that it's limited to a particular group in the context? Yeah. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, those that believed and were baptized. Yeah. Well, I'm that's talking the, about, well, that's the only sense in which... It well, I'm not yeah, talking about, like, the yeah. qualifications. <laughs> I'm talking about, like... But they're the, limited to, to, to that group of people, yeah. right? Those well, not three. based on, like, actions, but just based on, you know... The, like, like I know what you're it, saying. Yeah. I, yeah, I know what you're saying, yeah. but... Like, if there's a passage the, that limits salvation specifically to, to the a particular Jews, group. No, yeah, because what we talked like about that. in yeah. Romans chapter 2, where he said, whether you're Jew or Greek, and at that time, right. 
that's really you were one of the two, right? Jew or Gentile. I mean, numerous times throughout yeah. the New Testament, too. Like Christ is making that point that it's not just for the Jews right. only, it's yeah. for everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. So the and whole I, book, the whole yeah. book of Romans, yeah. you know, a good chunk of Galatians, parts of First Corinthians, Colossians, like how right. many times is this and, brought up? And I think that goes back, I think you may have mentioned this in the last one, Ryan, uh, Hebrews 5 and verse 9, where it says that he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. That's the, that's the limit, if you will. Those who obey him are the ones that are going to be atoned for. He died, and again, I would disagree with R.C. Sproul. I think Christ did die to open the door of salvation to anyone, Hebrews 5 and verse 9, who would become obedient to him. Now, again, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved, but what that does mean is that Christ died for everyone to have an equal opportunity. Yep. But limited atonement teaches he died only for the select few. Yeah, for the select few and just completely disregards everybody else that he hadn't already chosen. And to me, that idea also contradicts what we I think is revealed to us about the nature of God, uh, particularly in Second Peter 3 and verse 9, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you all have that verse yeah. uh, yep. here as well. Because there we are told that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, any should perish, but that all should come uh, to repentance. And in the context, he's talking about the second coming of Christ, and people are saying, well, if he's coming back, why hasn't he come back already? And Peter's point is God's waiting so that as many people who will and who can will come to repentance. Does God know those that are going to repent and come? Yes. But foreknowledge and predetermination in that sense are not the same thing. Because I could know something was about to happen and I wasn't the one that made it happen. Uh, Like if I see a kid running out into the road to chase after a ball and there's a car coming down the street, my limited foreknowledge could see, well, that child's about to get hit by a car but because I knew it beforehand does not mean that I made it happen. And so I think we have to differentiate between foreknowledge and, and predeterminism, I guess would be a good a, a term for that. Um, I don't even remember where I was going with that now. <laughs> oh, I think we were just talking about how it was for all. Oh, yeah, Second Peter 3 yeah. and verse 9, yeah. And I think Paul makes the same point. Is it First Timothy 2 and three verse and four. Yeah. 3 and 4? Mm-hmm that God desires for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Well, how could God, through his inspired apostles, say that he doesn't want any to perish, but that all should come to repentance, and that he wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth, and then turn right around and say, no, I've picked this one, but not that one, and my son died for you, but he didn't die for you. Mm-hmm. What That just it makes yeah, no sense. I mean, it kind of aligns with Titus 2. 11 and 12, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's appeared to all men, teaching those men. And I think it goes back to what Christ in the Great Commission, go out to all nations. Yeah, You know, he didn't say go to here. Now, on the limited commission, he did say, you know, right. go to certain places. But the Great Commission, he said to go to all nations. He didn't say, you know what? In the future, you need to skip this country. You need to skip that country. 
it was for everybody. And he said, teaching all men to observe all that I commanded you, which goes back to that whole, you mean I got a choice to obey the commands? Right. But um, Kind of reminds me of the mentality. Well, that mentality is opposite of the mentality that Jonah had. Remember, Jonah yeah. didn't want to go to the Ninevites because yeah. he was like, oh, they're wicked. Like you know, yeah. There's no point in going over there because you know they might not be God's quote-unquote sheep. So why bother? You know, this that's kind of the opposite of what, you know, God expected Jonah to do. God's yeah. like, you know, because I care for them, because I love them, and not because of preconceived notions, go preach to them. And, you know, they were converted, obviously. So, yeah. You don't have anything else with limited atonement that y'all wanted to add? Probably don't have a whole lot of... Well, go well, ahead, Ryan. Just real quick, another verse... When Peter was was we t- alluded to this last week, the Gentile conversion there in Acts chapter ten verse thirty four, Peter said, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Yes. And I think you might actually use that verse last time. Did you use that verse when I, you? I mentioned it, but I didn't actually yeah, like go to it. it, it Again, to the point that anybody in any nation, if they are willing to submit to God's yeah. rules, he's accept he accepts them. Mm-hmm. But and that that principle is over, over and, and over and over, and, over yeah. and over again throughout throughout the entirety of the scriptures. But of course, most importantly for us, the New Testament. Uh, I was going to okay. quickly add one more verse: Second Corinthians five. Uh, I'll just read verse fifteen. And he talking about Christ died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So again, all mm-hmm. these verses about salvation, it's not limited or exclusive. Yeah. So yep. uh, so that's L of the tulip. I is irresistible grace. Uh, again, this one kind of goes back, like we've talked about, all of these really go to the point of you have no choice. Uh, but... To define irresistible grace, I'm going to go back to R.C. Sproul, since he's the expert on this doctrine, just go to what he says. The idea is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. Previously in the article, just to give a little context, he was talking about that irresistible grace doesn't mean that people could not resist it, but... I'll just keep reading because he'll explain that point. It is not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing and more than willing. Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ, we run to Christ, and we embrace Him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. So basically what that is talking about and what he's saying there is irresistible grace means that if God wants to change your heart, he will. Even if you resist, he's going to overcome you. So you that can't make sense? so what he's saying is you can change, but it's not because but you change, it's because God, God changed you. you. Yes. Okay. Which in a sense again, that's what I was mentioning. There's a little, a little hint bit, of yeah. truth in there because we wouldn't know what to do. We wouldn't know the life to live had not God revealed that to yeah. us. Mm-hmm. So again, with it you. is ultimately God His doing grace that presented work. the word yeah. to us and yeah, right. I'm with you. But. but it's not in the sense of what he's saying here you that basically God will eventually overpower you and change you See, the whole, so that you want him. The whole thing about that is how does anybody prove their love to God? 
Yeah. They can. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus no. said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Right. Well, it doesn't it doesn't matter in that if if that's true, yeah. then no one really loves them because yeah. they're well, not Well, God's making them make love it well yeah. fair, but that just is that's not genuine love. No, that's, it's not. Okay. Anyway. No. I think that's what it goes back to is that it's not genuine love if you know, if God wanted robots, then he you would know, have had robots. Exactly. Yeah. It's because of God's love for us that we have free will to either follow Him or follow the works right. of the flesh. You know, it's it's one or the other, and it's because of our choice, not because God's like, "Here, go this way." Right. And, you know, He's like forcing you know forcing us down a particular way. But, right. well, well, Paul, you know, Romans chapter one verse sixteen tells us where the power of salvation is. It's in the gospel. Yeah. So again, did God give that to us? Yeah. But it's that message, and we see it over and over in the in Acts, and Paul alludes to it in his epistles that people were reacted to that word. They mm-hmm. made a decision. Do you believe it? I do. What do I need yeah. to? The eunuch said, "Well, here's water." You know, and and they may say, "Well, God made him ask that." I, right. But still, it's. I think God allows certain. Th- it's like His will for certain things to play out a certain way mm-hmm. but like for god it's not like a show of force i don't believe no so. no no but uh that the basic idea behind this too goes back to i guess the idea of irresistible grace is seated in the idea that one must be regenerated before they can come to faith because that's that's literally, I think that was the last sentence that R.C. Sproul wrote in that article. It may not have actually been the last sentence, but I know he wrote it. That regeneration precedes faith. And they say that because it goes back to the total depravity. Uh, because since if we are born evil, wicked by nature, inheriting Adam's sin then I guess it would logically stand that God would have to change us, like fundamentally change us before we could even come to faith. But of course, that's not what scriptures teach. Uh, And they use Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 7, I think, to support that idea. Uh, They should go a few chapters later to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Yeah, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, (laughs) that's a good point. Romans 8, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, and to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Uh, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Uh, So, in essence, what they say is they'll look at passages like that and others that are similar to it, and they'll say, well, see, we have this sinful nature. Our minds are set on the flesh. It's impossible for us of our own volition, of our own choice, to then turn to God and to seek after him ourselves. God first must regenerate us to create that desire in us so then we can come to faith. And it's like they, that's backwards. backwards. I, yeah, and you know, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when he was preaching to the mob there, and he went through you know, the history that those people knew. You know, he gets the point there, and he, in verse 51 he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And in, an inspired speaker there is saying that they resisted the Holy Spirit, whereas this guy is saying if the Holy Spirit 
if God wants the Spirit to change your heart, mm-hmm. you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Here it's telling me that you can. I mean, at least right. where I'm reading it here is right. that if, if Stephen is saying, you guys are rejecting the Holy Spirit, they obviously have some say in it, right? Right. One of the thing is, too, is if going back to those passages, Second Peter 3 and verse 9 and First Peter or First Timothy 2 and verse 4, if God desires that all men to be saved, why would God not overpower everybody, everybody. Yeah. to make them come to a faith in him? Which, that's the universal salvation doctrine, in essence, that God will eventually bring everybody uh, to him. Uh, but again, I think we see so many scriptures that teach the opposite, uh, particularly the uh, the opposite of the idea that one must be regenerated before they can come to faith. I think John 3, when Christ is talking about being born again, uh, shows that that teaching that can't possibly be true. And I think part of this, too, might also, I mean, I don't want to play into the Church of Church of Christ stereotype, but I think it does in part come down to a misunderstanding of the point at which one is regenerated, which is obedience to the gospel through repentance, confession, and baptism. Uh, because Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, we are told that we are buried into the death of Christ and we are raised up like him to walk in newness of life. It is at the point of baptism that the old man is put to death and we are regenerated, so to speak. We are made new, which is what that term regenerated means, uh, being made new. It's at that point of baptism that that happens. So if someone is baptized, they had to have had faith to begin with, going back to Mark 16 and verse 16, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. If one doesn't have faith, why on earth would they be baptized? That's like saying somebody, an atheist, is baptized, and then after he's baptized, he believes in Christ. Like, what kind of... <clears throat> well, what I would say to that is they could get wet, but it's well, not... they can. It's yeah, not going to... Right. Because I think you talked about it in the, one of the Sunday morning blocks that it's a physical thing, but it's a spiritual application, right? Yeah. right? It's like you get wet, but really it's... The spiritual side that to me is yeah. the most important right. part. Well, and that's even like Peter in First Peter three. It's not removal a physical of, bath. Yeah, move, it's it not is a removal of that the appeal to God for a clean conscience. Mm-hmm. I think it's just with this like faith, and then um, what was the word that they used again? Re- regeneration. Yeah, regeneration. It's like it reminds me of which came first, the chicken or the egg. But they've kind of got it backwards yeah. a little bit. But I, my mind just in just hearing kind of the argument here in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 it says by faith we understand that the word worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible but then if you go down to verse 6 but without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder those who diligently seek him and then throughout chapter 11 you know it talks about Abel, it talks about Enoch, it talks about Noah, it talks about Abraham, it talks about Sarah, like all of these, and it goes on for many more, Moses, so on. All these people had faith in God, and then their faith was, mm-hmm. uh, was you know, commended on because of that. It wasn't the other way around. Each of these examples, they had to have the faith first and the belief yeah. in God and act on that, and then... Uh, they became, you could say, like a child of God. 
from right. that point forward. It wasn't right. that they, you know, got in none of these situations throughout that whole chapter, not a single one of them did God go through this like process where they were kind of like, you know, had this enlightenment, I guess, yeah. if you will. And then they acted on God's faith that right. he gave them and forced upon them. So, yeah. Anyway, I just feel like it has has a backwards here. Yeah, I think I agree because it it just it doesn't make any sense. Well, it's not biblical, I think, when we look at a lot of those verses to say that one is regenerated, so they're made new, which we're told in Second Corinthians five and verse seventeen that in Christ we're new creatures, so we're made new, and then we come to faith. That just logically, those that's in yeah, the reverse. This is the this is a quote from a book called "The Five Points of Calvinism," and it in in this one it talks about um, those predetermined or ordained of God will be drawn to Christ by the inward supernatural call of the Spirit, who through regeneration makes him alive and creates with him a faith and repentance. Yeah. So, to your point, there's an inkling of truth. The Spirit is what gave us right. the Word. The Spirit is what you can. The Word will cut person to the heart, will make them believe or not believe, yeah. and will cause them to repent. Right. So, to a certain extent, the Spirit's involved, but it's right. not something that the, it, to this well, point it's not you, supernatural, yes, and and thing. you don't have yes. to accept it or listen to right. it. And that's where you get to the point of like, well, I don't believe. And also, when do you get the gift of the Holy Spirit, though? Like according to scripture, it's it's you know at the point of baptism, right? You can't have the gift. Yes, but not according but to their to, argument. But to me, the Holy Spirit works through the Word. So right. those that aren't those that aren't believers can still be drawn right. by the Spirit. Through and the Word. I think to your point, I think that's what is being highlighted by the supernatural aspect of that—that that it takes something Away. beyond yeah. Scripture in order to create that desire in us to seek after God, which, again, that's contrary to Scripture. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 14, we are called by the, the gospel, gospel mm-hmm. which is the Word of God. It's not some mystical, you know, nondescript kind of event in our life that changes our mind. It's the Word of God. I mean, like you said, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, Romans one sixteen again. Yeah. It's the power yeah. of God. Yes. It's that, it is the power of God to salvation. Yes. Right. To the Jew first and the also Greek. Again, yes. again, for everybody. So yes. going back to one of our prior bullet points. But Do you have anything else? Not on that. Okay. Did you have anything else on re- irresistible grace? Just that it's resistible. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. We ought to come up with our own acronym for this and you know, change them around. We could probably but come anyways. up with some pretty good stuff. Yeah. I mean, you came up with nachos. Was that the one? Nachos. Hiccups. Hiccups. Hiccups, where he used every other letter, and to, that's just a placeholder. <laughs> hey, that's a pretty good acronym. <laughs> anyway, Don't be hating sorry, on the hiccups. I'm not. I'm not. I just thought it was funny how you're like, that's a placeholder, too. <laughs> well, you But know. anyway, go uh, ahead, Ren. Okay, so the last one, the P in tulip, is sometimes it's worded as Preservation of the saints. Uh, the one that I've seen the most, I think, is perseverance of the saints. And again, just going to R.C. Sproul, the series of articles that he wrote about this, it states, So the old axiom in Reformed theology about the perseverance of the saints is this. If you have it, that is, if you have genuine faith and are in a state of saving grace, 
you will never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. In essence, that's once saved, always saved. If you're really saved. If you're really saved. Yeah. But that's the other, I think that's the the sub-doctrine of once saved, always saved that a lot of people don't really don't think want, about. Yeah. 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 Uh, so the idea of, you know, if you're saved, if you're really saved, then you're going to remain faithful to God. But if at one point in your life you are doing everything that you know that you ought to be doing to be pleasing to God, and then later in life you abandon that and go back to living in sin, well, then that means during that period of time that you were actively trying to live faithfully to God means you were never actually saved, no matter what you were doing at that point in time. Uh, so again, it's once saved, always saved, with that sub-point of if you fall away, then you were never actually saved. Uh, there's so many passages <laughs> that... Uh, refute this and to me uh, not to kind of use like a catch-all verse but the one that I always go to first is 2nd Peter 2 20 through 22 because I think this answers both aspects of that argument uh, because he is is talking about people all even back up to verse uh, 18, he says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So people are drawing away disciples, enticing them with these sensual passions. They're already barely escaping, but now these false teachers have come, enticing them with these things. And then in verse 20, he says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from it, from the holy commandment, delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. To me, the first part of verse 20, where he's setting up this scenario, I think is the nail in the coffin of this idea of once saved, always saved, or perseverance of the saints. Because he says, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... What does that sound like? It sounds like they were saved. Mm -hmm. Does it not? Sure. It yep. sounds like they realized, oh, hey, how I've been living was wrong. They've come to a knowledge of Christ, going back to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, 3 and 4, that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Christ is the truth, John 14. Uh, they've come to a knowledge of Christ, They've escaped the defilements of the world, which how could you do that if you were not saved through Christ? But then they are again entangled in them and overcome. And he says in verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. If they were never actually saved to begin with, what difference does it make? Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, I know that's your go-to. My typical go-to is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
where Paul talks about, yeah. and, and this one doesn't, you know, explicitly say that Paul Paul was saved. I think it would be hard for anyone that reads the New Testament, and even those of the Calvinist faith would say Paul wasn't really saved. Um, going back to your point, if you if you lose it, you never right. had it. Um, I think they would be hard pressed to say Paul never had it. But here he warns that. Um, that all basically are competing, and his point was they compete in these races and they discipline this discipline themselves to make sure that they are at their best when they compete. They don't, you know, they they and we see it in Olympic athletes today, right? I mean, they are on a regimen that starts probably almost immediately after the last Olympic Games, and you don't see them doing certain things that is going to put them in a disadvantage when they get ready to compete. But the thing I point out in verse twenty seven is he disciplines his body to keep it under control. He submits himself to self-discipline so that he doesn't sin because he said, lest after preaching to others, I myself sh- my, I myself should be disqualified. Well, disqualified? Disqualified from what, Paul? Well, he's talking about winning a, a, a imperishable, imperishable wreath, right? Or yeah. the, the reward of eternal life. Mm-hmm. So wait, Paul, you're telling me you could be disqualified if you... Don't control yourself. Yeah. yeah, that's what he said. Well, and I think too, which that goes to another passage I was wanting to bring up in Colossians, because being or becoming disqualified implies that you, you were, were qualified. qualified. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it means that you were saved, but now you're not saved. Mm-hmm. Plus, I think it's just contradictory to some of the other parts of Tulip that we talked about too, yeah. like the fact yeah. that you know they believe that it doesn't matter what you do. You're either saved or you're not saved, so you can't have it both ways. It can't right. be this over here, but then something completely different over here. Yeah, you know, if if you believe that you can, if if you believe in unconditional uh, unconditional election, then you can't like you have to either be once saved or always saved or once or never saved, <laughs> never saved or yeah. something. Yeah. I guess. I, I think I also like Hebrews chapter ten for this because Mm -hmm. 26 through 29 let's say um he starts out with saying for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth and to use your question ren what does that sound like after receiving the knowledge of the truth that you were saved you were saved and we'll get and someone will say well it doesn't say that but wait till we get to verse 38 and then we'll will basically show you that they were. But anyway, he says, if you continue to sin willfully or deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Well, if you don't have a sacrifice for sin anymore, that means you're carrying your sins with you, which Mm -hmm. means you're no longer in a safe state, right? right? So I would say you've gone from being saved to being unsaved because you are following this pattern of living however you want, sinning willfully, Mm -hmm. deliberately. We're not talking about, as we've said before, we're all going to sin, but this is that... I'm putting it into practice. Yeah. This is my daily life. This is what I'm doing. Right? Romans 6. Yeah, Romans 6, exactly. And he says, okay, um, so you don't have a sacrifice anymore, but you have a fearful expectation of judgment, yeah. which sounds like you're going to be right. not rewarded with what right. you want, right? And he says, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then he goes on to compare this person's actions with those that spurned the law, the law, the old law. Mm-hmm. He said, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He said, how much worse punishment? This kind of goes back to what you were saying in Second Peter, where he said it was, would have been better, yeah, because yeah. I think there are going to be levels of, of punishment. Yeah. I think here he says, 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? So you tell me that person wasn't saved. Yeah. It literally says there that the blood sanctified him. Right. Right? And now he has turned, turned away from, from it. it. Yes. How much worse of a punishment? Right. He had it at one point. Yeah. So yeah. I don't... I mean, you can't just... If you do all of those things, and because of what Christ did, you can't not have, you know, justification. All of these things cannot just be, like, overlooked. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. And even to go to another, a couple of other passages in the book of Hebrews, one of the ones that I thought about while you were talking is chapter 3 and three. verse 13, yeah, where we are told to exhort one another every day while it is called today, lest you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Mm-hmm. He's writing to, and I think this is another good point going to what you were just talking about in chapter 10. He's writing to Hebrew Christians. So they were Christians. They were already saved. And he's saying you have to encourage one another so that you don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But then he doesn't say, but if anybody does, then they weren't actually ever saved to begin with, and they never will be saved, so just leave them alone. No, because there's always that threat of falling away, which is why we have to exhort one another. Mm-hmm. Chapter 2 and verse 3, making a very similar point to what you just brought up, Ryan, the Hebrews writer says, How shall we escape if we neglect so neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Again, he's making that, I guess, contrast or comparison, really, between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. Because in verse 2, he says, The message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So he's saying, when people were disobedient to the law of Moses, they were punished. And how shall we, who's the we? Christians. Christians. Escape if we neglect such a great salvation. He's saying, how will we escape the judgment of God if we turn from the salvation that we presently have? Again, I just think I, there's so many verses. Yeah, that, I see your Hebrews 2 and raise you to Hebrews 4, yeah. where, where at the end of chapter 3, he's going, he's continuing that message that, that, they, that the Jews disobeyed in the wilderness, mm-hmm. the Israelites disobeyed in the wilderness, and what did they forfeit? They forfeited yeah. the promised land. Right. They forfeited entering in the rest, right? And then he continues into chapter 4, and he warns them that, hey, we've got a better rest waiting for us, we the Christians. And he says there in verse 11, let us therefore be diligent, do our very best, right? Do our very best to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Mm-hmm. So that tells me that the Hebrew writer is saying, hey, do your best, to, to make it there, because unless you're going to trip up like right. the Israelites did and be forfeiting your promised yes. land. That's and kind of the same analogy or similar one that Paul was making, too, that you brought up earlier. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, no, yeah. you're good. I was just going to say that's literally the entire point of the book of Hebrews. Better. Yep. <laughs> Is it better, yes. And it's also, I don't know why I'm shutting my Bible. <laughs> I think I'm wrapping up the end of a sermon. <laughs> no. Uh, right, but you can the come whole... forward now. <laughs> Stand and sing. I got you covered with the song. The, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is don't go back to the law of Moses because you will forfeit your salvation that you have in Christ. That's the entire point of the book of Hebrews. Yeah. And Paul says that in Galatians, right? When those yeah. people tried to go back, he said you have 
fallen from right. grace. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. the key verse that a lot of people hone on here, right? Yeah. It's like, you can't fall from grace. Well, yeah, you can. Paul said Paul you did. Paul literally says that And it's because these people grace. were doing yes. what you were just saying. Hebrew writer was warning them not to do. Yes. And so. Peter, too. Dog returning to its right. own body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. Just exactly. gross, but anyway. Well, I, I couldn't believe that we overlooked this verse, too. Um, but in First Peter chapter 1, um, kind of a similar thought to what we're talking about here. Add, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For these are things are yours and abound. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to add these things to you. Be more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So like a few things, you know, verse 10, you know, this is why I couldn't believe that we didn't bring this up before talking about unconditional election. But therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. I think like this is kind of the point that Paul and Peter uh, was were both making that like add these things, do your add best. these qualities, yeah. do your best. Yeah. Because otherwise, your election might not be sure. So, you know, but if that was all predetermined, then... And I think you you said it in the, I think last, you might have said this week too, but or last week's podcast, but your point was, and we've said it before, what is the purpose of the Bible? And we've said, you know, if we wanted to cover the Gospels, great, and then the history of the church, what's the purpose of the rest of the Bible? What's the purpose of Paul's letters, Peter's letters, when he says you need to put away the old man, put on the new man? And to your point, Robbie, it's like, if none of that mattered, mm-hmm. why even write it? Well, and especially going back to the irresistible grace, if it takes a supernatural working of God outside of the scriptures to regenerate us, yep. then what is the point? Why yeah. doesn't he just do it for each individual yep. if that's already what he's supposedly doing? Mm-hmm. Makes no sense. Uh, y'all have anything else? I'm sure we could. I mean, we could have made this a five-part series and spent about an hour on each of these things. But then we would have did three, took a month off, and then That's come back true. in January, yeah. and nobody would know what we were all even talking about. So <laughs> We would have started in Chapter 5, and they're like, what? <laughs> uh, do y'all have anything else on no. those before we close out? No. no. Okay, well, we thank y'all again for, for tuning in and listening. Again, we hope that these past couple of weeks have been beneficial and encouraging if y'all have any more questions about these things because we weren't able obviously to cover them as in depth as we could and so if y'all have any other questions feel free to reach out uh, to us Uh, and if y'all have any other suggestions for us to include uh, in the next season uh, please let us know that you can email us at the conclusion of the matter at yahoo.com or message us on Facebook, text us personally if you have our numbers, say something to us at service one time, whatever the case may be. Uh, But we thank you all for for listening, and for now we can say that that is the conclusion conclusion of of the matter. matter.